Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been lost. And I'm not talking about leaving somebody in the library, which has happened more than once. But I mean, you've been so lost that there was a search party that was actually sent out or that was actually begun to, to look for you. Or maybe you were in the search party and you were going out and you were trying to look for somebody. Sometimes they can, they can be very chaotic and, and information doesn't always get put out there exactly right and things like that. Some of you are laughing. You, get, you, you know some stories like this. But get this one. Listen to this. About 10 years ago, there was a sightseeing tour in Iceland that actually lost one of its sightseers. She was nowhere to be found. And so panicked, the sightseeing tour group, they actually called the police and a search began to look for this lady. Hours later, at about 3 o'clock in the morning, they discovered that the woman that they were searching for had been there the entire time. Apparently, while they, they were out doing some sightseeing, she kind of left the group, and she went off, and she changed her clothes. And when she came back, she was wearing a different outfit, and so the rest of the group did not recognize her. On top of all that, when the description of the missing woman was given, they described her as an Asian woman in dark clothing who speaks English well. And see, this lady apparently didn't put together that they were somehow trying to describe her. And so she actually began to assist all of the others in searching for herself. You see, she didn't know who she was looking for. And so today, as, as we're continuing our, we, our, our way through the final week, we're looking at Jesus' final week on earth. We're going to talk about who are you looking for. And we just read the scripture, and you can see the picture up there, where, where they come into the garden and they're coming to arrest Jesus. Our scripture says in verses 3 and 4, So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches and lanterns and weapons. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is it you want? You see, Jesus asked them, Who is it you want? You may know that Jesus, he loved to ask questions. And as I was doing some web searching, some, some research and stuff, I discovered that Jesus asked over 300 questions within the four Gospels. Well, some of the website pages said it was like 307. One of them went even as far as to say that within the four Gospels, Jesus asked 339 questions. Questions like, do you believe that I am able to do this? Who do you say I am? What do you want me to do for you? Why are you so afraid? Do you love me? And perhaps maybe the most important of all questions, what good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? Jesus will always seem to be able to ask the right questions at the right time in order to, to challenge people to think about what it is that they were doing. And so when this band of armed men, when they arrive and they come to arrest Jesus, he asks the right question at the right time in order to challenge them to think about who are you looking for? Well, who is it that they were looking for? The very first person I want us to talk about, out of, right out of the box, was Judas. Who was 
Judas looking for? We are told Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, he went to the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Judas is leading this band of armed men to go and arrest Jesus. And so Judas, he was looking for Jesus in order to betray him with a kiss. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Judas, the one who would betray him, said, surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus actually answered him and said, yes, it is you. Now Judas, he wasn't a very nice guy. He's gone down in history as one of the most despised men of all time. He's become the symbol of betrayal. But why? Why did Judas betray Jesus? Well, Judas was a man who was driven by greed. John described him as a thief. He stole some money from the money bag that the disciples would use to buy stuff. Basically, he was skimming it off the top. He was embezzling some of the money. And Judas's reputation, it was so blackened by his treachery that in every single one of the Gospels, whenever there is a list of the disciples, Judas is always listed last. In fact, one of the other disciples, his name was Thaddeus, he was also called Judas. And in John, in John chapter 14, John refers to him as Judas, not Judas Iscariot, just to, to make sure that there was no confusion between the good Judas and the bad one. Now, all that said, what's interesting is how the Bible talks about Judas beyond that. Do you realize that Jesus never, never once mistreated Judas? In fact, Judas was actually there at the Last Supper with Jesus and the other disciples. Jesus even washed Judas's feet. In addition, aside from the Gospels, Judas is only mentioned one other time, and that is in the book of Acts. And then he's never, ever mentioned again in all of the New Testament. Now, you would think one of the most notorious traitors in Scripture would somehow gotten a little bit more press than that, a little bit more written about him. I mean, Benedict Arnold gets worse treatment than that in American history. But why does Judas seem to be looked over? Why does Judas get the kid glove treatment within the Bible? Well, here's the deal. The message of Scripture is that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. That's every single one of us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. They basically are all going to go to hell. And hell is eternal separation from God. But we've all sinned, every single one of us. And that means every single one of us deserve to eternally be separated from God, deserve to go to hell. But then Paul writes, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. 
The main theme of Scripture is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. In fact, Paul actually wrote in 1 Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. Paul is basically declaring here that whatever it is you think of Judas, I was worse. And so I believe Judas, who was someone that I would have seen as the worst of sinners, kind of gets a little bit of the kid glove treatment because God didn't want to give the impression that some people were not worth saving. Now there's a lot of debate out there that goes on on whether Judas was saved or Judas was not saved and did he go to heaven or not and we will never know. On this side of heaven we could never ever know. But didn't Judas have an act of repentance? He wanted to go and return and once he realized what was truly happening he wanted to go and return the money and when they wouldn't take it he threw it there. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know what they're doing. Could he have been talking about Judas? It's very possible. See, Jesus will save anyone who believes and repents. And Judas could have been within that group. We don't know. Jesus came to save the worst of sinners, whether it was Judas or Paul or maybe even me. And so Judas, he came looking for Jesus that night. And he's leading this band of armed soldiers. But who is it that the soldiers were looking for? Well, they said that they were looking for Jesus of Nazareth, but you realize they didn't even recognize him. They didn't really know who Jesus was. And so they actually have no idea who it is that they're looking for. You see, this mob this band of men who were coming in, they knew very little about Jesus, except that other people hated him. And because others hated him, they didn't like Jesus very much either. There's a lot of people who are out there who are just like that, aren't there? They don't know much about Jesus. They don't really know anything about him. But the people that they hang around with don't like Jesus, and they talk bad about Jesus, and so it makes them a little bit hostile toward Jesus. They've listened to the wrong people and they've come to the wrong conclusions. And all they need is someone like Peter to come along swinging a sword around and cutting off people's ears to confirm their doubts about our faith. Doesn't take much, does it? So how do you deal with people like that? Well, you definitely don't go swinging swords at them. Don't get them angry. You don't attack them. You don't push because they will tend to push back. Things can get ugly at that point. way to deal with people like that is to love on them. Don't give them any more ammo. Don't give them any other reason to hate Christ. The best thing to do is what Jesus did. He wasn't offended. He walked right up to them and he told them what it is that they needed to hear. But what is it that people need to hear? Well, it kind of depends. There's atheists and there's skeptics. And they like to dominate a conversation by by keeping Christians on the defensive, by keeping you on the defensive. But Jesus, he was really good at at diffusing that approach by putting his adversaries on the defensive when he would ask them a question in return. You see, Jesus, he wasn't afraid to tell people what it is they needed to hear. 
We shouldn't be either. If we're speaking in truth and in love, we should be able to tell people what it is they need to hear. One problem is that there are too many people that say they are afraid to share because they don't know enough to witness to others. Do you realize how Jesus actually witnessed to this crowd? He asked them who it is that they were looking for, and then he simply said, I am he. And that's it. He doesn't get into some real deep theological discussion with them. And sometimes that's all that we have to do. And that is to point to Jesus. Don't point to the church. Don't point to congregations. Don't point to denominations or to preachers or to pastors or elders. Simply point people to Jesus. You don't have to get theological and into anything really deep. Just tell people what Jesus means to you. Someone once said that a good witness is like a signpost. Nobody cares if the signpost is ugly or if it's pretty, if it's old or if it's new. All that really matters is that that signpost points in the right direction, that it gives the right information. All that matters is that it's easily understood. And if we are witnesses for Jesus Christ, our job is simply to point to him. We are signposts. We point to Jesus and we say, this is who I believe. And he's changed my life. There's one more person that I want us to focus on this morning. A man named Malchus. Just as a reminder, here's what John tells us about him in verses 10 through 12. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. Malchus. Who was Malchus? Well, he was the servant of the high priest, and, and Peter cut off his ear. And that's all we really know about him from Scripture. And yet we are told his name, Malchus. But why would we be told this man's name? If you go through the Gospels, most of the people that are mentioned, they don't have names. You know, there's the wise men, the centurion, those who were sick, those who were lame, those with leprosy. There are all kinds of people that Jesus healed, that he touched on his ministry. We don't know their names. So why are we told Malchus's name? It only shows up once in all the scripture. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and I'm going to speculate a little bit. Please follow with me if you can on this. There's a common agreement amongst a lot of scholars that when you read a person's name within the Gospels, it's probably because he or she, that person, became a Christ follower. They became a Christian. And they would have been well-known there within the early church circle. For example, the man who carried Jesus' cross to Calvary, he was a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus. And Alexander and Rufus, they seem to have been referenced in Acts and in Romans. And then there's Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, Joseph of Arimathea. And there are scholars who believe that all of these people, they became Christ followers. And so again, they would have been well known amongst the early church. 
I mean, why give a person's name if, if no one's even going to know who it was? So here we have Malchus. And if Malchus did become a Christ follower, why would he do that? Why become a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, if you go to Luke chapter 22, in verses 50 and 51, it tells us that one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear, and he healed it. Yes. Jesus healed the guy who came to arrest him. He was the servant of one of Jesus' arch enemies. He worked for the high priest, and yet Jesus touched him. Jesus healed him. And I suspect Jesus did more for this man than just heal his severed ear. I suspect Jesus' kindness somehow touched deep into the part of this man's soul, and it laid the groundwork for his conversion. And as Teresa has already said, if Jesus performed a miracle in your life, if he was able to restore your ear, wouldn't you believe in him as well? If Jesus reached into your life and touched your life and did something miraculous for you, wouldn't you believe in him as well? There's a story about a little girl who was proudly wearing a, a shiny cross that was on a chain and it was around her neck. And one day she was approached by this man who said to her, little girl, don't you know that the cross Jesus died on wasn't beautiful like the one you are wearing? It was an ugly wooden thing. To which the girl replied, yes, I know. But they told me in Sunday school that whatever Jesus touches, he changes. The way for us to touch people for Jesus is to share how Jesus has touched us, to share what Jesus has done in our lives. There's an old gospel song that goes this way. Shackled by a heavy burden neath the load of guilt and shame. Then the hand of Jesus touched me, and now I am no longer the same. He touched me. Oh, he touched me. And oh, the joy that floods my soul. Something happened, and now I know he touched me, and he made me whole. So as we wrap it up, something to leave with you, something to think about as we, as we get ready to, to sing this song. How has Jesus touched you? What did Jesus do to change your life? And see, once you can focus in on that, once you can figure that out, you're ready to go out and witness. That is your key to go out and to share with people and to point people to Jesus. How has Jesus changed your life?